The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Wow, what a great show for you today. I am absolutely immersed in work, overwhelmed, scrambling for oxygen, way too busy. How do we get these episodes up there? How do we get two done a week? Somehow it all happens. Luckily, I have two great guests today, Ulrich Baer and Smaran Dial, who are here to help us out. They have done an amazing job putting out an anthology that, well, let me put it this way. I used to teach college courses, and it was extremely rare to find a single book that I would use for a class. I'd put together course packs, which was fine, but I like to have an anthology too, a good or a great anthology. Some of the anthologies I used to use were so good, you you could put it right on your nightstand. You could take it to your reading chair. It wasn't just for the classroom. It was one you'd take with you on a flight. Not just teachable, but readable. Even so, I'm not sure I ever used a single anthology for an entire course. There was always some gap or other, some something I needed to swerve to cover, some point I wanted to make. It's like the blanket doesn't quite fit on the bed. You have to stretch it, position it just right to cover your toes. There was always some path I wanted to explore with the students that wasn't there in the anthology, so I would supplement. Well, this anthology, the one we're going to be talking about today, rings both of those bells for me. If I were teaching, I think I could base an entire course around this anthology, and it's also good enough to just read to just read. You don't need to be connected with the Academy at all to enjoy this anthology. You can absorb it in small chunks. That's There's a few ways to read good literature, right? One might be you get a book like Anna Karenina and you just fall back into the sofa. Some great big readable book. Dickens is like this. Just fall back and Lose yourself, let the hours fly by. Another way of reading is to take things in smaller bites. Maybe you read a poem at a time, stop and think about it. Maybe one a day is enough. Maybe you want to spend two or three days on a story. Borges, this anthology, I think, is in that second category. Maybe you read the introduction or read the introduction to the author that's provided, then read the story or poem or excerpt, and then you think about it. Think about it before you go on to the next one. The anthology is called Fictions of America, the Book of Firsts, and that's why it's so good for reading and thinking. Your mind is fully engaged. You're thinking on a couple of levels when you read this book. One is to enjoy the work for its own merits. 
Stay within the four corners of the text. Read for plot. Read for character. Read for story. Read for word selection, diction. The other level is to think about what it means for this author at this point in time to be writing this work. What inside them drove them to write it? What let them think they could do it? What were they wrestling with? What were they drawing upon? How was the work likely to be received? And how does it stretch us out today? Firsts has a couple of different possible meanings. Who are the famous firsts? What comes to mind when I say the first one to do X? Neil Armstrong, first man in the moon. Barack Obama, first black president. Jackie Robinson, first black ball player, or first player allowed into the major leagues, I should say. George Washington, first president. It was the first group to split the atom, the first woman astronaut. Kamala Harris, first vice president, president-elect. <laughs> Did I say that right? First vice president-elect. In literature, we often look for firsts. First person to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, Sully Prudhomme in 1901. First woman to win it, Selma Lagerlof, 1909. First songwriter to win it, Bob Dylan, 2016. First person to write in the vernacular in Italy. First person to write a sonnet. First person to write a stream of consciousness. First work of literature that survived. We awarded that to Gilgamesh. First woman to write poetry in her name. We discussed that in our Enidwana episode. And when they're the first, sometimes it's just the first we know about. Sometimes it's not literally the first, but the first to really popularize something. And sometimes we know for sure they're the absolute first of their kind. They bring with them a kind of historical power and interest. If you could take a look at the first person to use fire or to figure out how to use a wheel or to see an elephant, that would be interesting, right? You could see what they did before. What were things like for them before and what they did after? How did it change them? How did their being first change the world? First movie, first movie with sound, first movie in color. You know, you're on the verge of something new for firsts like that. You're on the verge of an expansion. Oh boy, this is going to change things. Maybe the first movie with sound isn't great, but without it, we don't get to Citizen Kane or Casablanca. And when we talk about demographic firsts, we have expansion in a couple of different directions. I'll take an example here from the table of contents from this anthology. First published American queer novel. When do you think that was? It was Theodore Winthrop, born in 1828, died in 1861. His novel Cecil Dream came out in 1861. Now, don't you want to know about Theodore Winthrop? Who was he? What led him to write this novel? Who published it? What was the response? And don't you want to hear what it sounds like? How open is it? How bold are the themes? Is he working with innuendo? Does it seem like he has to conceal what he means? Is his artistic palette limited to double entendre and knowing winks? Does he write like he's scared of being discovered? Was homosexuality illegal? Now we can get into the history. Was homosexuality illegal 
when he was writing? Did he fear prosecution? This is decades before Oscar Wilde over in England. This anthology lets you explore that kind of question. And knowing what you know, you can think, well, it's before Oscar Wilde. It does come one year after the first published gay-themed poetry in America, which this anthology also sets forth for me, which was by Mr. Walt Whitman. You've probably heard of him. You can read that, too, in this anthology. You can see that it's just two years after the first published work of fantasy fiction by an African-American author. Eleven years later, we'll have the first published novel in English by a Mexican-American author. Who would have thought it? By Maria Amparo Ruiz de Burton. The first published novel by a Native American woman author. When do you think that was? 1891. And the first published play by an Asian American author came in 1893. Firsts. Every one of these firsts expands our circle. We get a different point of view, a different background, a different set of experiences. We see who was there. Talked about that with Anna North. Can't remember if that was in the excerpt we've put out or if that is coming in our full interview with Anna North. We see it's not the it's not that we have to insert these people into history because it's fun. They were there. They were there too. We are reading about them and reading works by them because we we don't want to look at a, a a painting that's all in one color. We don't want to just see one person. We want to see the whole range. We want to figure out what the world was like. And why do we do that? Because we are reading literature to learn how to live, to expand our minds, to stretch our world, to feel, to deepen our experience. That's why I read. Not in the, oh, literature lets me travel around the world. I hate that. That's not deep enough for me. Literature takes you anywhere. So does an encyclopedia. So does television. So does a slideshow. If that's all it can do, who needs it? Where I need to go, what I need from literature is to explore being human. To explore human relationships, to consider things I haven't considered before. To laugh, to feel pain, to be challenged, to feel like I'm alive. I want to know how people are thinking how they're relating to the world, how they're relating to one another. I want to explore their hate and their love for God or a mountain or their next-door neighbor or their money. What was being alive like for you? What journey were you on? And how is it like mine? And how is it not like mine? You walked across broken glass in your bare feet. And I'm walking across broken glass in my bare feet. And do any of the sharp edges you felt tell me anything about the sharp edges I'm feeling? I know that sounds a little cracked, (laughs) that view of life. Happy holidays, everyone. (laughs) Jack's here again, like a demented Santa, tossing out his little packages of joy. (laughs) We're all on a journey. It's just not a nice 
Magic carpet ride. It's a pilgrimage across 50 years of broken glass with no end in sight and no shoes. And yet, I kind of love it. I kind of love life. I'll take the cuts if that's part of it. I'll hobble through the pain. And so, I like the state of mind, the people who have tackled this problem through literature. I like when they find their character to write about or their voice or their artistic form. I like when they find the perfect fit for their gifts and their project or when they find the perfect tradition to fit into or when they create the the style or the form that's necessary for them, the one that fits what they're trying to say. Proust isn't a first in any category, really. Not the first novelist, not the first French novelist, not the first gay novelist, and yet he's absolutely original. I love that about him. I love the path he had to forge. He could draw upon his predecessors, but he also had to find his own way. And in a sense, that's what all creative artists do. They might find their inspiration, but they also might need to strike out on their own, whether that's a wild new literary form, a a big departure, or whether it's just a new kind of character, or whether it's just the story they have to tell, which hasn't been told before. And maybe it's new because of who they are and how they've been treated by society. Maybe they're not even recognized as worthy or capable, or even as something less than human. Maybe that's how they've been treated. Maybe they've been treated as invisible. They've been erased, or they feel like they are being erased. The erasing is going on, and yet they put pen to paper and say, Here, here, this, here I am. And a whole group of people might say, Wow, yes, I'm reading it now, what you wrote, and I see it. I see who you are. I see you. You're here, and I'm bigger because you're here. Basketball is better because it's not limited to white people. Music is better when it expands to include different genres, different approaches. Imagine how much pleasure you get from a Lionel Messi, let's say. And now let's say only Europeans were allowed to play football. Argentinians, not eligible, not allowed. Would football be better to have Lionel Messi living outside of the circle of football, standing on the sidelines, watching other people play? Of course not. Same thing for literature. Is literature better if it's done by white Christian men between the ages of 25 and 45? No, of course not. Would it be better if the only poetry form was a sonnet? If there were no other forms you could use? Of course not. Someday we'll have a woman as president, by God, which is great. We need to open the pool to get the best person. Why limit ourselves to 50% of the population? And we need not just a first, but a second. I talked about this with Smaran and Uli, but I think it was after our recording was over. It's great to have a Barack Obama. His election expanded our view of what's possible. Our circle grew, but it also creates more room for growth. There are kids out there who think, yes, I can. That can be me. They can grow up knowing that it can happen. We can have a second. Might be even better than the first. Maybe James Joyce's Ulysses is impossible to duplicate, and maybe Finnegan's Wake went too far. 
But when he pushes limits, when he pushes boundaries, the novel stretches. It can do more. It gives the novelists who come after more room to maneuver. They don't have to write Finnegan's Wake because they see he's done it. They see what worked about it and what didn't. They can pull back. Other innovations might be more of a springboard. Maybe we move forward beyond the innovation. You think, wow, you can do this? Well, then I can do this plus a little more. That's what's so wonderful about the anthology we'll be talking about soon here. You can read Sui Sinfar, who wrote the first published stories by an Asian-American writer. Read The Gamblers from 1896 and think, she did this. Who read this and thought, oh, you did this? Then I can do this too. I can do this plus. And the rest of us now have Suisse and Far to think about her story, her example, her career, her life, her take on the world, everything she was up against and how she conquered it and getting to where she could write a story like The Gamblers and what happened to her next and what happened to literature next. Did her story open the floodgates? Or was it just a a lonely light in the distance like a lighthouse, maybe not even seen for a while, until the ship's finally, the ship's captains finally looked and said, oh, there's a light through the fog that might help guide us to where we want to go. Okay, you know how I feel about new ideas, new people, new places, new thoughts. I'm in favor. (laughs) Is that controversial? It shouldn't be. This book is full of those things. Very rich material for a fan of literature like me. Let's take a quick break. Hear a very quick email or two. Well, just one, I think. Very quick email and then have our guests on to talk more about the firsts in literature. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Oh boy, a little 
Christmassy music to get us going. You know how it is for me, people. Even in a pandemic, even when I'm not at the store, the grocery store, hearing the bells, seeing the lights and decorations, I still get the fever. It's my state of mind. We are watching Die Hard last night, putting us in the mood. We've got It's a Wonderful Life coming up. I'll be mixing that in with my Uncle Vanya, my Chekhov. <laughs> oh, it's a good December. First email, or only email, I guess, is from Lane. Subject, thank you. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for your podcast. I appreciate your thoughtful approach toward the literature featured on your podcast. I listen in the car on the way to teach English classes to college freshmen and sophomores and imagine having discussions like you and Mike have sometimes with my own students. Parens. It happens sometimes, but not as often as I would like. Close parens. I've taught for several years and sometimes think I'm doing it all wrong when I'm met with stony faces after I invite students to express their own ideas about literature. But I am encouraged by your welcoming approach and attempt to make the study of literature a rewarding experience for my students. I fear that students see the study of literature as out of reach because of some of the snobbery that is present in the discipline. I wish only for them to recognize what you suggest in your podcasts and the about page on your website, that humans tell stories and that it is through stories that we understand one another. Kindest regards, Lane. Lane, thank you for this wonderful email. I love the idea of that I am there in the car on your way to class. Oh, those stony faces. I remember those days. Those are just waiting to crack open. There are real people in there. You know how I know? They listen to this podcast and they email me. <laughs> they tell me that they were in literature class and maybe they regret that they didn't do more with literature when they were in class. Now they're older. Or maybe they are still in class and they're excited, but they just don't know what to say. That's true. There are real people in there, but it's also true. There is a lot of snobbery out there about literature and a lot of this is how you should talk about literature and this is how you shouldn't. And I know I know how you should and I'm going to tell you how you should talk about it and all of that. Fine, great, whatever. I really don't have time to be bothered by those people. You will note that I no longer teach as part of an institution and I don't really have a boss so I get to read what I want and say what I want, and I could stop tomorrow if I want. I'm not going to. I could. I'm not in faculty meetings discussing pedagogy. I don't have a syllabus that gets reviewed. Nobody swings by to tell me what I can or can't do. I don't have to talk about how we talk about books. I can just talk about them. Literature in the Academy sometimes has a kind of layer over it that can get in the way but there's humanity at the heart of literature. There is a reader and a writer, and they are two humans, and they are connecting with one another. Staying out of the way of that is sometimes the best thing we can do. <laughs> Making a reader think, oh, you don't, you're not qualified to read this. You don't get it. You don't know how to read this the right way. That's just ridiculous. It's like handing someone a it's like taking someone to an art museum and handing them a book in the lobby. The museum is full of Monet's and Van Gogh's and Picasso's. And you say, wait, 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 before you go in there, 
I want you to take this book, which will inform you how you should be looking at this art. And then I want you to go stand in the room where these paintings are, but don't look at the paintings. Go in there, turn your back to the wall, and read this essay that I wrote telling you all about the paint that they used, the chemical composition of the paint, because that's where I took my scholarship. That's what, that's what I wrote about. <laughs> Here's my theory of what the paintings mean. It's all about the chemical composition. Well, that's great. I mean, if you love art and you've seen all the paintings and you've felt all there is to feel, then you might want to know more and you might want to know about the chemical composition of the paint. Maybe that's very interesting. Maybe that can tell you a lot about why the paintings look the way they look or what the painters were up to when they were getting ready to paint. That might be interesting. Or you might want to read a, an abstract theory of viewership that might help expand your appreciation. You might enjoy talking about that with other experts in your field. But if someone has never stood in a room with a Monet or a Bruegel or a Michelangelo, some 15-year-old, some 18-year-old, maybe they've never been to a museum with a Monet or a Bruegel or a Michelangelo, never had the chance to just stand there and stare at a Van Gogh and feel that wild view of the world staring back at them, then maybe, maybe don't try to load up the viewer's head with ideas for what they should think before they hit in there. Here's how you should look at it. Here's a little, here's a little deep dive a little abstract piece of information. It's like giving them sunglasses to wear. <laughs> Fogged up sunglasses. Maybe just let them see if there's something in that painting that will blast something open in them. And then if they really love literature, they really enjoy it, they really, uh, they really become... The kind of people who go to a million museums and look at a million paintings, then yes, welcome them into the deep dive. Give them the latest on the chemical composition of the paint and tell them, you know, we still have a little corner of this research that's there just for you. Go ahead, jump in, become an expert in that. That's great. But for the rest of us, those of us who are out here trying to make it. We can pick up a book if we want, but we can do other things if we want to. We could just turn on the television. We could just stream videos. We can just read Twitter all day. We could read TikTok, watch TikTok videos. There's no reason why we have to read novels or poetry or any of it. It's all optional for us. Give us a reason to turn to it. And the reason is not going to be because <laughs> there have been some fascinating discoveries about the chemical composition of the paint. The reason is going to be because we need that painting to do something for us. Something in us is dying for it. Okay, enough of a rant. Lane, good luck to you. And thank you very much for the email. Let's save the rest. We've got some firsts to talk about, a whole book of them. 
We'll be joined by Ulrich Baer and Smaran Dial after this. Okay, joining me now are Ulrich Baer and Smaran Dial, who are the editors of an amazing new book called Fictions of America, the Book of Firsts, a very exciting new anthology. Uli and Smaran, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thank you, Jack, for having us. We are totally excited and thrilled. And this is our first podcast interview about the Book of Firsts. Oh, excellent. Well, I think you will probably have a bunch of these because I just cannot tell you how excited I am to see this book and and to talk to you about it today. So let's start with the book, and then we'll circle back to the two of you. Tell us about the Book of Firsts. So um, if I can start, so... uh, the idea for the book of first came out of teaching, where I've been teaching a lot of undergraduate and graduate students. And I was thinking, what are the first texts published by Americans to create our canon and our tradition? Mm. And two things motivated me. I was really interested because I'm an American and we love the first, the first and anything. I was interested. Who is the first poet? Who is the first playwright? Who is the first novelist? Who is the first African-American, the first Chinese American, the first Native American? to establish their tradition as a category. And I was stunned to discover that the history goes back much further than I had anticipated, that Mm, people had written much, much earlier than what I thought. And uh, the only other thing I'll say, I've always been really interested and invested in the First Amendment and our notions of free speech. And I always thought it doesn't always take people to wait for Congress or the Supreme Court or anybody to give them the right to speak. People take that right on their own and by themselves. And so I was interested in people who spoke out, expressed themselves long before they were even recognized as citizens or fully sort of enfranchised citizens of our country. Right. And Smaran, how did you become involved in the project? So I became involved in the project because I've been working with uh, Uli as a research associate, you know, for the past uh, four, four and a half years uh, during my PhD at uh, NYU in comparative literature. And I've actually worked with Uli on um, some of the, the free speech um, uh, mm. criticism that he's written and scholarship that he's done where, you know, like, uh, I, I mean, Uli, correct me if I paraphrase you incorrectly, but part of the the question that Uli was interested in was how do you historically contextualize free speech and how is free speech being weaponized in, in its contemporary usage? So it was sort of out of some of those questions that I think um, we uh, you know got to this project. And so for me personally, though, with American literature, what, what's been so interesting about this book is that I actually have a background in American studies. My undergraduate and master's are in American studies. And um, my approach to the field has been, you know, one that has emphasized critical race studies, feminist approaches to literature, queer theory. And um, despite being in a department, um, I did my master's in Berlin, despite being in a department where, you know, this was very much our emphasis. It, there was like a social movement emphasis, feminist studies, critical race studies. What was maybe missing was the this concrete literary history. Mm you know, of the diversity of American literature. So we'd often 
you know, read Emerson or Dickinson through a very, you know, race critical or feminist lens. But that's a different thing from going back into archives and going back into American literature and, you know, showing that um, authors of color, queer authors have always been producing literature, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And maybe one final point, um, uh, you know, about how I think this book is really important is that even when it comes to, say, specific American traditions like Asian American studies, Asian American literature, you have these, you have anthologies in each of these um, sort of subfields. I Mm -hmm. recently taught an introductory class to Asian American studies. And so some of the texts, like the the Eaton Sisters, Suisse and Far, they they pop up in, um, you know, in Asian American studies syllabi. But I think the, the broader project here was to say, okay, let's sit down and see what is this early history of, of American literature that has been overlooked? Why isn't it in the canon? Right. Well, this anthology helps to make the case for some of these authors and to bring them into prominence. There were a lot of them that I hadn't heard of, but when you recognize that they were the first one in their particular area, and we'll talk about some of them and, and what those areas are in a moment, but I wanted to to circle back to the idea of the First Amendment being part of this, because that was not something that I had anticipated or really thought much about. Were these authors relying on the First Amendment in order to be able to publish what they were hoping to publish? Or are you is is it more a sense of the First Amendment is a strong tradition, and so within that tradition it gives publishers and and maybe scholars or editors a kind of interest in being broader than might otherwise have been expected or uh, permitted had the First Amendment not been a strong tradition in America. The First Amendment, I think, let's say spiritually, socially, gives yeah. us this tradition. But the First Amendment, which was ratified in 1791, is never cited by our Supreme Court until 1918. Mm. For almost a hundred years, it's not cited once by the Supreme Court, which I was really surprised by. I thought the First mm. Amendment is the mm-hmm. one major principle. It's called Senate the First. It gives us the right to free speech against government interference or censorship. But what I really thought, the First Amendment is there, but it is a law. But a lot of the people in our anthology didn't fall under the considerations of that law because they weren't even granted citizenship status. Oh, right, the most right. prominent category is, of course, African-Americans and Native Americans who were deprived of full status. But they are writing and publishing books and poetry in place. And there's a really a strange and peculiar and interesting text in this book by Robert Hunter, who is the British-born governor of the province of New York in 1710 which is before America becomes an independent country. Mm-hmm. He writes a really outrageously funny, provocative play called Androboros, which is kind of making fun of the legislature, which defeats him at every turn because they keep on not accepting his proposals. So he's in a kind of a governor who has been stymied by his own, um, by his own kind of political body. He writes this play. It's very funny. It's a farce. It was probably meant to be read out as a satire to other people, never performed. But that play, interestingly, has a direct connection to a trial where a newspaper publisher is punished in 1734. And that probably, everybody believes, gives rise to our idea of the First Amendment. Mm. Our First Amendment actually is not just rooted in philosophy and Rousseau and Milton and people like that, but it's actually rooted in a literary work that provokes the the people to sue a publisher who ultimately won. So there's an interesting prehistory to the First Amendment. But to go to your question, does the First Amendment allow these people to speak? 
It actually really doesn't. And no law allows anybody to speak. A law yeah. protects you after you've spoken. So this is kind of the history of all the people who spoke long before their rights were defended in any court or before they had to wait for any court, justice, Congress, etc., to grant them that right. And we were interested in this kind of earlier history where Americans exercised the right to free expression outside of jurisprudence and legal debates and sort of these kind of more technical or formal ways of legislating who can speak and who cannot speak. Right. So to give uh, listeners, I want to give them a sense of what they would find in this anthology. Robert Hunter, in the excerpt from that play, is is third in the book. It, it moves chronologically. It begins with the Iroquois creation myth. It goes to uh, the first published poet in the North American colonies, Anne Bradstreet, who was writing in the 1600s. Then we have Robert Hunter, uh, the British-born governor of New York, we next go to the first work of literature by an African-American author, the first published African-American poet, uh, the first play published by a woman in America, and so on. And we travel through the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, getting a, a taste of the first published literary work by a Native American author, the first novel published in America, and so on. A lot of these were names I had never heard of, and others were familiar, but I maybe didn't necessarily put them in the context of them being the first in their field, or I just I, I didn't know that they actually were the first. How did you go about locating these, and what, what type of research did it require for you to identify these individual authors and them being the first in their category? Well, I let Smart jump in in a second. I think we really want to give credit to an enormous amount of researchers and scholars who've done most of this work, mm. who've really spent decades in archives. Some things were known. Anne Bradstreet, the first woman to publish a book of poetry in the North American colonies, her books were known. But Jupiter Hammond, who's fifth or sixth on our list, one of his poems, he was a man born in Long Island, enslaved by a Long Island family for the 95 years of his entire life from 1711 to 1806. And he published his poetry as an enslaved African-American in Long Island and in New Haven, one of the poems was only discovered in 2016. Mm. So we didn't know that this poem was published actually in 1786 um, and recognized and it was important. And so the work that we relied on, which initially Smart and I both thought, well, you type into Wikipedia for right, an African-American right. <laughs> poet and you get the answer. You actually don't get the answer. Right. And I was wondering about that. The reason why we made this book is because this book didn't exist. This, there is no such book. I honestly thought I could just Google type it in and I get a book delivered tomorrow that says the first of everything. And it wasn't there because, as Smaran said, so many of these people were kind of rediscovered or legitimated or printed for the first time in fields that have only been in existence for a few decades, such as... Mm. Native American studies or Chinese American studies, Asian American studies, Latinx studies. Those are relatively new fields, but these writers go back 150 years. Yeah. And maybe the writers didn't necessarily identify or weren't identified as such. Uh, it, it occurs to me as well that, that maybe it's not clearly set forth. You know, here is like in this edition, we are publishing a story by an X type of person, but that it would be something that maybe scholars would discover later or would, would cause some kind of stir or the, the author would be become a celebrity in some other way or... Uh, did you find that that was the kind of digging that people had to be doing that you were able to draw upon? 
in some cases and with some of the authors, they did cause quite a stir, um, you know, in their historical moment. So someone yeah. like Phyllis Wheatley, yeah. um, who travels to England, whose reception, um, uh, even within the U.S., it, it, it causes this kind of social stir. Like, here's uh, this Black woman poet. But um, to answer your first question, like, we're really building on... Let me talk about how some of the research happened for this book. We're really building on... A lot of the work is built on the scholarship, um, you know, of other scholars. So uh, people who work on Jupiter Hammond, Cedric May, or, or so many other scholars like uh, P. Gabriel Foreman and um, Ivy Wilson. Um, Uli just interviewed... Uh, a scholar of Native American literature, Robert Dale Parker, who is the person that, you know, I, I use this word with hesitation, but discovered um, the poems of Jane Johnston Schoolcraft, who's the, you know, the first um, uh, Native American poet, um, uh, um, published poet in, um, in the anthology. And he found her. And, and so this is part of the, early, um, let me describe some of the early research that precedes our research, right? So um, he discovered her poems in Springfield and the state archives of the state of Illinois mm. amongst the papers, um, which were mostly administrative papers of her father, who was, who was, uh, an official that, you know, uh, liaised between the U.S. government and, uh, Ojibwe communities in, in her part of the country. But her poems were never public. I mean, were never sort of made available to a broader public. Because they were simply considered to be the poems of this administrator's daughter, like sort of doodles or, or things not taken seriously. And so it's taken right. that kind of that research work to go back into archives and to see, um, you know, what kind of literature has been overlooked. What is this early American literature that has been overlooked? For our part, I think a lot of the, the work was reading published work. So, so going back and and meticulously reading anthologies, scholarly monographs on, say, early African American literature, early Native—I mean, early Native American literature. Looking at different queer literary histories of the U.S., scholarship on women's writing, and so, um, yeah, and so, so a lot of it was that. A lot of it was also close reading texts. I think this is something that we shouldn't underestimate because, as you said, a lot of these categories uh, are things we might take for granted today, right? Like, okay. So-and-so right. person is a Mexican-American author. That category did not exist in the 19th century when one of the authors uh, that we anthologized here, Burton, was writing. There was no such category, right? It wasn't used until 50 years later. So a, a lot of the work was close-reading text to see, okay, like, can we count this, you know, this text by, um, say, Rose Terry Cook as the first lesbian-themed writing in the U.S.? I mean, that's a call that we have to make, right? Um because that category simply or, or other scholars have to make, because that's a category that simply didn't exist. And so we're also don't want to be like ego, like sort of egotistical to think that we're the people who could make these calls. So a lot of the work was also writing to, uh, you know, scholars who is, who focus on these particular mm, traditions. Right. Um, so, so a lot of the work was also emailing and, you know, and talking to scholars. And yeah. I think you're right. What Tamara is saying, some of the categories, just didn't exist and they will shift yet again. We would be excited if someone corrected the book and said, actually, I found an earlier story. I found an earlier poem. We'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> you can, the writer that Smart just mentioned, Jane Johnson Schoolcraft. So she's married to a U.S. government official who is responsible for managing Indian territory in what's today Michigan. So she lives in a house with a white man who works for the U.S. government who's administering her indigenous nation. So she's moving directly between two cultures. 
So she speaks her native language. She's the first poet to publish a poem in a native language. She's the first um, woman Native American poet. She's the first Native American poet. She occupies five positions that are the first. She probably was partly aware of that, but she also negotiated between two different cultures all the time. She also spoke French. She spoke English. She spoke indigenous languages. So we had to make a decision at some point, but this is based on the the consensus of the most up-to-date scholarship. And right. some things to me were really weird. And actually, Maron and I, we, I mean, we spend a lot of time on this, a lot of time. COVID in a weird way helped because what else can you do? So I would spend an entire <laughs> night up. And I was, I would call him and say, look, I figured out that actually Suzette Laflesh or Inshallah Tumba, who is uh, the first short story that's not a legend story by not, by Native American author published in 1881. That story was published. And I found it after reading, I don't know how many incredible scholarly books on Native American literature. And someone there mentions her story and says this is an important story. And then once you type that story into Google, then you find academic articles that are mm. hard to access. They say, oh yeah, first American, Native American story, non-legend story. So the reverse engineering, you can do the book now, type right. in all the names, and every single one will come up. Someone will say, this is the first of its kind. I think another story that Smart and I were really excited about is Frederick Douglass, who everybody knows, because mm -hmm. he writes incredibly important political essay, editor of a major newspaper, the first African-American diplomat appointed by the American government, famous for his autobiography of uh, growing up enslaved. He writes one piece of fiction for a fundraiser for the Rochester Society, the abolitionist movement called The Heroic Slave. To be honest, I did not know this text. That is on me. I should have known it. I've read a lot of Frederick Douglass, but somehow I'd never realized that he also wrote fiction and mm. not political work. Yeah. So why did you focus on fiction and poetry? Why not include among the firsts uh, speeches or political essays? I mean, I think uh, while me and Uli were, you know, conceptualizing the book, uh, this was one of the first things that we talked about. Because if you look at the other academic anthologies that are out there, they include large numbers of, you know, uh, nonfiction texts, essays, political speeches, which is great. But we think that there's something qualitatively different about fiction and, and, and poetry. We use the term mm -hmm. imaginative literature to like, you know, to capture the two of them. And there's this one line in the introduction where we talk about this. Maybe I'll just read it out. So we say, the book presents works of fiction and poetry rather than speeches and political essays. Because imaginative literature aims not for factual truth alone, but for accuracy and authenticity in the telling. Mm. And so, and so when we say authenticity in the telling, what we're trying to convey is that there's certain social, individual, aesthetic experiences that absolutely speak to a certain kind of truth of what it meant to live in America these past 300 years, right? But mm -hmm. cannot be captured by census lists, cannot be captured even by a political essay. There's something substantively different about poetry. So we were talking about Jean Johnson's Schoolcraft. She has one of her poems that, that, um, you know, Robert Dale Parker and, and Uli discussed on his podcast is her describing her return to her home and, and talking about the pine trees, right? And, and you might think that and how the pine trees are something that evoke a sense of home and even a sense of ind indigenous identity for her. And that's mm. something that you simply cannot capture in another medium. Her sort of 
aesthetic description of this experience of returning home. And I mean, for literature scholars, for English teachers, for students, I'm sure this is nothing, you know, uh, radical or outrageous, but it is something that, that qualitatively sets apart imaginative literature from other kinds of writing. Yeah. And I, I think, it, Jack, it goes to your earlier question. I think we also pick literature because if you think in a simple way, a political essay has to make an argument or a newspaper editorial to appeal to a lot of people, to convince them of something or show them something that they didn't realize. Literature doesn't really do that. It's not in the service of convincing you, but making you understand the texture of a life. A lot of the people in this book, their lives were not considered even fully sort of legitimate lives. I mean, a lot of these people wrote under conditions of enslavement or sort of displacement or women who had no right to be schooled. Many of the women here who published the first novel in the first place never got any formal schooling. So you're thinking of teenage girls or Phyllis Wheatley, the first woman to publish a book after Anne Bradstreet. She was not schooled. She was enslaved by a doctor's family in Boston at the age of seven when she was brought from West Africa without a family. So these people are describing life in terms that has to be established on its own terms. It cannot be immediately translated, say, I speak on behalf of, of what category? Mm. Of the category that isn't there yet. So literature has what we call this authenticity in the telling, which I think connects back to what I started out with. My students responded incredibly strongly to a lot of these texts. They were really electrified. They were like, wait, this is the first Asian American to publish in America and it's 1890? Yeah, And I had a student who's a really wonderful student um, at NYU Senior, and she went to really fine high schools in L.A., and she's now at NYU, and she said she had never, ever been assigned a text that represented any part of her. And I said, come on, that can't be true. You must have read a lot of books. And she said, I read a lot of books, but I've never read a text by an Asian-American author in school. Mm. And I, I sort of thought, that is on us to fix. And what yeah. Maran said earlier, if you look at the Norton Anthology, which I'm a great fan of, I love the Norton Anthology, I love the Heath, all these major anthologies, they will group some of these writers under the rubric of women's writing, African-American writing, Asian-American writing, and then those writers are now burdened to do a political task, to give speeches, to write essays. I feel they're not given the freedom in the anthology to write poetry and express themselves. Mm. Whereas, you know, you have Whitman... He, can, he has lots of space. Emily Dickinson has lots of space. But if you are the first African-American poet, you're not quoted for your poetry, but for a letter you wrote to the legislature. So right. there's a way in which certain discourses, and I think get pushed into the service of making political claims where we think actually liter literature does something else. It actually establishes the, the realness of a life. And that, is, I think, is what my students pick up on. Yeah. And and so many anthologies would focus on the best. You know, it would be uh, you would include Toni Morrison, for example, or, you know, somebody who is, you know, which I'm not going to complain about that. I love Toni Morrison and, and she deserves to be at every anthology that, that an editor will put together. But she was someone who was aware of her role and aware of, you know, the responsibility uh, that she was taking on, and and that was kind of part of her project. Whereas a lot of the authors you've selected, it does feel like we're almost overhearing, eavesdropping on them in a way that this is their imagination. And when you put them in the context of, uh, wow, this is a hundred years earlier than I would have thought that someone was writing uh, from this category, 
Uh, you can really see them kind of carving out space for themselves in a way that I found very invigorating. No, and also to go back to um, uh, what you just said about the best. Yes, I'd love to have Toni Morrison in every anthology. I think what we need to pause and think about, and, and this is something I mean we talked a lot about, is the very measure by which we decide what is the best is, you know, historically, socially, politically charged. And mm. so that's not to say that every text by, um, uh, by an author of color or every text, uh, uh, every poem by a woman is, is somehow aesthetically groundbreaking. That's not the claim. But what we do want to point at is that how we've come, I mean, and there's something people you know that's generally talked about but how we come to decide the aesthetic greatness or the aesthetic quality of a particular text is not something that is independent of historical forces and so mm. i mean in the introduction you might have seen we put um uh, a poem by john Rowland ridge an excerpt next to a walt whitman poem and uh, i mean it's if you if you didn't know better i mean these are both uh um incredible uh these are both incredible poets but one is impossible to locate in in a lot of anthologies and in a lot of um uh you know uh, american literature syllabi whereas walt whitman is is ubiquitous he's not just in in american literature anthologies but just like rumi or you know khalil gibran you, you he cited all over facebook and all over the social media and my grandma knows who whitman is but right. my grandmom wouldn't know who John Allen Ridge is, right? And so that's sort of uh, uh, our angle on it. We're trying to say that these authors, um, a lot of these um, authors who are first in their respective, you know, categories and communities, um, are also aesthetic geniuses. This is this is amazing literary originality, and and so that's our sort of dual definition here. It's not just um, it's not just firstness in. Uh, say an identity category, or, or um, but also um, aesthetic originality, because there are some texts that um, um, uh, you know might be firsts in a particular category, um, but aren't the most um, uh, you know aesthetically uh, pleasing, original, or groundbreaking texts. Right. But this is a great question, Jack, because it, what Marvin is describing, there's a kind of tension in the book which we found productive that originality is usually defined as kind of cognitive originality, the way Emily Dickinson conceives of the world, which is hard for any of us to really assimilate even today. Then there's aesthetic beauty, the splendor. And then there's this category of being the first of one's kind, which are separate categories. But I mm -hmm. think I think the book invites you to think about, oh, so I knew always Walt Whitman. I may not have read that much Walt Whitman, but I know he's really important. He's sort of the first sort of self-declared American poet, the Bard of America, Emerson praises him. But what does that actually say, whether this poetry is as important for shaping our nation? And then the other poet that Maran just referred to, John Rowland Ridge, who is a Cherokee poet, uh, his Cherokee name is Shishwatal Ononi, he's, he's writing poems at the same time, which I thought were as powerful for me as Walt Whitman. And here we get to the most difficult question that you're asking, who establishes originality and how do you do that? Yeah. I was very fortunate. I was a student of the late Harold Bloom, who was my colleague at NYU, but I never thought he was my colleague. I thought he was my prophet-like teacher. <laughs> and Bloom would have, I, ha I have this, I, I have this happy belief that Harold is very happy right now. He's in somewhere in heaven and he's looking at this. He says, Uli, what is wrong with you? 
aesthetic originality supersedes every other category. These are sociological categories. These are political categories of political identity. They have nothing to do with literature. Right. And I would love this conversation with Harold and say, well, look at some of these texts. And I know at some of these texts, he would bark and he would hum and haw and he would sometimes say, this is a remarkable line. This yeah. poem says something new to us. And well, yeah, go it, ahead. It's so interesting. And as you say, it, it's so provocative and, and I can see where it would uh, spur such interesting discussions because one of the examples that comes to mind is is someone we covered here on the podcast, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, and one of the one of the critics of her or one of the common criticisms of her is, well, where is the African American experience in her writing? Does isn't this just safe? Isn't this you know what was published in the newspaper? Where are the spirituals? Where 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 does the tradition that she came from inform her writing? And I kind of took the position of, wow, you know, that's asking a lot of somebody who is just trying to write her best poetry and get it published. And, you know, it's it's maybe unfair to her personally to hold her to that. But I can see where if you're looking at these authors individually, sometimes you will probably find uh, that they played it safe that way, or they wrote what they knew, and maybe their their model was a Charles Dickens or someone, and, and that's what they emulated, and they didn't depart from it much. And other times you might find that someone is drawing upon the stories that they were told by their grandparents or that they were familiar with from another tradition, and they imported that into their work. And you could see the, that them being first coming from that tradition was very important artistically as well. Is that kind of the mix that you're seeing in these authors? I would jump into just, you know, add one point here, which is why isn't that question in in a broader public sphere asked of Emily Dickinson or asked of Anne Bradstreet? Why is that question always directed at African-American authors? Why is it directed at Phyllis Wheatley? We don't ask um, Dickinson's poems to speak to the historical process of um, you know, dispossessing and displacing the, the indigenous uh, nations on whose land she lives and writes, right? So, I mean, this is something that um, I, I think we really need to be aware of. I mean, in literary criticism, um, in indigenous studies, that these are questions that are being asked, but like, why why this question directed at Wheatley? And I think if you read her poems, I mean, um, she does mobilize um, uh, the genre um, or some aspects of, of uh, you know, sentimental poetry and of Christianity, um, you know, to very much uh, um, uh, show how, uh, you know, slaveryism is, was a moral evil. I mean, mm. this, I think you're right. People will look at Phyllis Wheatley and expect the poetry to do a certain kind of work. With Dickinson, there's a huge tradition, very, very powerful, with Susan Howe and other people, really amazing writers who actually want to kind of put a feminist agenda at Dickinson and saying she's talking about the condition of women. Some of her poems, you have no idea what the gender is of the subject speaking. She seems to be navigating her space in a cosmos that's much bigger than anything we can imagine. But you're right. The way to answer this in another way may be to think T.S. Eliot said quite famously, and Harold Bloom didn't like any of this. He said, every work of poetry or fiction, every work of literature reshuffles the entire canon. Mm. Once you know that Phyllis Wheatley wrote and took Alexander Pope or Milton or Spencer, uh, the British tradition that she was, uh, when she was familiar with from being homeschooled to the point she was homeschooled as an, as an enslaved servant, 
she took this tradition and said something and slightly shifted it. Every mm -hmm. poet slightly shifts it. There's no poet who writes something so utterly original because that would be considered prophecy or insanity. We couldn't understand it because he wouldn't or she wouldn't speak in a language that anybody's familiar with anymore. So Wheatley shifts it just enough. And then if you listen to a line of Wheatley, I'll give you one line. There in one view, we grasp the mighty whole or with new worlds amazed the unbounded soul. She's talking about new worlds that will amaze the unbounded soul. Once you read her and you think, okay, the new world, referring to America, amazed our soul, that the language of, as Smaran said, religious language of Christianity, which is always enlisted by African Americans to dispute the legitimacy of slavery. And then the unbounded soul. She is a bound person. She is an enslaved person. So the unbounded is the free soul that the imagination would liberate to see a new world, which was in America in a different way, not with slavery, but without it. So you could take one line and say, huh, she sounds like a regular poet. She's rhyming. It sounds like 1780s, like all the poets write like this. What's so innovative? What's amazingly radical is now we hear the word unbounded soul in a different and new way. So I think once you pay attention to any of those texts in this book, you start to hear things differently in a new way. And you hear a much deeper kind of echo in American literature than what I was really taught to taught in graduate school or mm. in college, really. And there's one, maybe one final point that I'd love to add before we move on from, from Wheatley, which is that when we look at American literature, it, um, when a story about American literature is told, it, there's often a, a kind of a genealogy built back to Europe, right? You have tra uh, transatlanticism. Uh, the the predecessors of American writers are to be found in Europe. And I and something that me and Oli were talking about the other day is let's not forget Wheatley was born in Africa. There's a genealogy of American literature that does not lead back to Europe, even when it's written in a European language. Right. When when we looked at Phyllis Wheatley, we saw that being first could sometimes lead to trouble with the society that didn't recognize the legitimacy of that writer. Are there other examples of writers that you found who took personal risks or were oppressed in some way? So one of I love all the texts in this anthology, but some were discoveries that totally floored me. So Sadakichi Hartman who lives in the late 19th century, who's Japanese born, he has a German father, Japanese mother, escapes from, from Europe and comes to America at age 17, goes straight to Walt Whitman and has a conversation with him. Walt Whitman is very old at this time, living in New Jersey. He walks in, has a couple of conversations, and then writes something that Whitman doesn't agree with. So Hartman, who's an 18-year-old boy, turns around and publishes a little book called Conversations with Whitman. Mm -hmm. So he, he knows he's going to be somebody. So... <laughs> He writes a play in 1893, which is very early, called Christ, a Dramatic Poem in Three Acts. He writes a play about Christ, about Confucius, and about Buddha. Mm. This play is banned in Boston. It is burned by the Censorship Bureau. He's imprisoned on Christmas. It is considered the most outrageous of all decadent plays ever published in Boston at that time. So he actually goes to prison for a little bit for publishing this play. And all the play asks is, this is Christ deciding whether he wants to devote himself to a life of universal love or to live out his own experiences, which is loving a woman. Mm. And so he actually goes to prison for this for this story. And he also becomes the first major critic of photography as a serious genre. He publishes about 500 essays for Stieglitz. He writes a history of American art that becomes a textbook for decades. He writes 
a couple dozen other books. He becomes an actor in the silent movie, The Thief of Baghdad, and becomes a Hollywood actor. So he has a career that Ezra Pound sums up in 1940. If you didn't have to live your own life, you would like to live Sadaki Trees Hartman's life. Yeah. It, and so there are some people who took real risks, who actually published things that they were they realized they would be attacked for um, or censored for. Walt Whitman, who we include in the anthology, in the Calamus poems, in, published in 1860, which speak very strongly to homoerotic or gay love. He's basically sitting in bars, meeting the eye of another young man and being delight, delighted and happy to be in this kind of communion with somebody. Um, they are now regarded by many scholars as sort of gay themed poetry. But Whitman himself denied later on that there was anything homoerotic because he wanted to be canonized. And he, mm. at that point, right. if he admitted to that, he would have been thrown out, so to speak, out of the canon of America. And I still, I read, I read a lot of biographies of Whitman. I still laugh when biographers hesitate and hum and haunt. Say, well, we don't really know whether right. Whitman really. And I'm thinking, did you really know what Emerson did in the bedroom? Did you really know what right. anybody did in the bedroom? Somehow Whitman, has, you have to have proof, like a photograph, and everybody else is just heterosexual. But to say that some people they risk something, uh, absolutely, and they were not necessarily celebrated. I think. Several of the women in this anthology, they published against their family's wishes or because they had to survive and make money. Right. So Harriet Wilson, who publishes a novel called Our, which is N-word, N-I-G, Sketches from the Life of a Free Black, which was the first novel published by an African-American woman author in 1859. She publishes this book to make money because she's losing her child to child protection services, the equivalent of that time, because she lives in poverty. Um, and she's selling this book just to make money at this point. It becomes one of the most interesting books in the American canon because it's a very complex character of a woman trying to find her way, which is what most of the literature in the 1850s is talking about, how do women actually uh, gain some kind of freedom. So there are those cases of people who wrote uh, Theodore Winthrop, Maybe Smaran can talk about this. It was also, he never got a novel published in his lifetime, actually. He was a kind of a Civil War hero. Mm. I mean, Winthrop is such a fascinating figure. We think of, uh, you know, the Greenwich Village, um, and, uh, and sort of queer life in New York as, um, as exemplified, you know, by the 60s and 70s, the Stonewall Rebellion. Here you have a novel from a hundred years before Stonewall, where this gay man, um, is going around the village, living his life. This is the, the setting of the novel. And he falls in love with a woman. And he's confused as to why he falls in love with a woman. It later turns out that his love interest is trans. Um, or at least that's a term that, that you could retroactively apply to it. And it's the, the, the humor, the setting. It's just, for me, it was fascinating to discover that Greenwich Village a hundred years ago was a, a, also kind of like a, a, a harbor of, of queer and gay life. And yeah. it's like, it's like Winthrop in this novel, Cecil Dream, which he dies in the Civil War in the first battle as a soldier, sort of, he's a, he's celebrated because he comes from a really big family. His father was the president of Yale. He's a huge American family, dies immediately in the war, then they publish his novels really quickly. And as Maran said, it's set in the village in New York City. 
And if you know Edith Wharton, The Age of Innocence, it's like as if he takes a character who shows up in Wharton and writes an entire novel about her. Yeah. And suddenly you think, wait, what, this happened also? And he goes to the opera and he has fancy dinners and drinks champagne all night and hangs out in boarding rooms. It's exactly what Edith Wharton will do. It's exactly what America is trying to figure out. How do people start to live this freedom that everybody's promised here in these very different ways? So Edith Wharton focuses on a woman trying to live out her freedom and the man who loves her who won't, who won't really find fulfillment. Theodore Winthrop thought, how do you live as a man falling in love with a woman who is a man who's actually maybe not a man? <laughs> so that's a different kind of freedom. Yeah. So that raises a question for me. And maybe the way to get at this is to return to Phyllis Wheatley and something you said about her in the introduction, where you said that her work is paradigmatic for all the works collected in this anthology in some ways. And what, what did you mean by that? I thought that what I said earlier, that it reshuffles our entire understanding of the canon. Mm. And secondly, it shows the power of literature to actually reveal the amazing diversity, multifacetedness of lives in America at that point, and that people were fully aware that their lives mattered. They were different from a kind of standard version that you could find in the major publications. So they felt they had to speak on their own terms. The first published work of fiction by an African-American author is believed to be the story, Teresa, A Haitian Tale, published anonymously in 1828 in an African-American newspaper whose editors say, we have enough people speaking on our behalf we need to speak for ourselves. Mm. So Phyllis Wheatley is paradigmatic that she shifts the paradigm that she's not being talked about as an enslaved woman and the abolitionists fight about her or people, other people excited about her. Jefferson dismisses her and says it's not worth reading. But Jefferson, very interesting. Thomas Jefferson writes about Phyllis Wheatley. Obviously, she bothers him in a way. Yeah. There's something in there where he has to actually go out of his way to say, that's really not poetry. Yeah, because he right. cannot imagine that an enslaved black woman could write American poetry because it would challenge his idea of what America is. Yeah, and, and I wanted to, like maybe I, I wanted to jump to the one person I also really was for me one of the really f f sort of transformative moments is Sui Sen Far, who writes the first Chinese American stories in Canada, then in, in North America in in, uh, in eighteen ninety six. She is as paradigmatic to me because she decides as a, she's half Chinese, half English. She could have what we call today passed easily for Caucasian and lived a life called, uh, uh, you know, uh, with her regular name. She decides to call herself Sui Sin Far and publish as a Chinese American about the Chinese American experience. She's putting into words something that had only been considered a political problem or a journalistic issue in fiction. So that is like Phyllis Wheatley. She shifts the entire idea of what literature can do by giving mm. to an experience that really hadn't been represented. Yeah. Well, that is the beauty of the book for me. It expands the definition of American literature. It expands the definition of being an American. I really, I just cannot recommend this highly enough. The anthology is called Fictions of America, the book of firsts. Is it available now or is it pre-order available for pre-order now? No, it's out. It's available oh, it's out. Okay. Uh, through your independent bookstores. It's on Bookshop. It's on IndieBound. You can also, if Amazon's the only thing that you can use to get the book, it's also on Amazon. And the ebook is under $10 on also on Amazon. 
Okay, excellent. Well, Ulrich Baer and Smaran Dial, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. This was wonderful. Thank it's you. Really, thank you so much, and thank you for doing the work you're doing because we really think literature matters maybe more than ever before. So we're so happy to be part of your podcast. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Uli and Smaran for joining me. Their anthology is called Fictions of America, the Book of Firsts, and it would make an outstanding holiday gift for your favorite book lover or for yourself, assuming that those are two different people, I guess. (laughs) Maybe you are your favorite book lover. That's okay. Literature is a big world, people. It makes us bigger to have it be big. Let's enjoy the expansion and look forward to how the expansion lets us expand to stretch your mind. Hmm. We're part of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. What else do we have to go over? Oh, we'll be back Thursday with number two in our Thursday theme of Chekhov's plays, Uncle Vanya. Vanya, I hardly know ya. (laughs) Surprisingly, that joke didn't make it into the play. Anton nods, I guess. I don't like puns, so I'm not going to be the one to advocate for it. Although I did like it when my roommate's friend came to visit Chicago and he was from Louisiana by way of Ole Miss. And we went into a restaurant and the Chicago waitress said, Super salad. And he said, What about it? Soup or salad? She was giving him a choice between items. She was not saying super salad. A salad that is super. (laughs) What I liked about that was not just the the word play, but that here he was, 18 years old, sitting in this restaurant, slightly ill at ease because he was in an unfamiliar setting, and he thought someone came up to him and said, Super salad, out of the blue, as in, we have a super salad. (laughs) It's just super salad. (laughs) She didn't say anything else in his mind. Just said, just announced that they had a super salad. He was supposed to respond. At this place, at this restaurant, people just blurt out menu items, apparently. Creamy milkshake, tasty cheeseburger, big fat fries, super salad, super salad. And he didn't say, I'm sorry, what? I might I think I misheard you or are you asking me if I would like your to try the super salad or oh that's nice go away <laughs> go blurt out your menu item somewhere else but he was what about it super salad what about it yeah you got a salad that's super so <laughs> my son when he was little met a go oh Did we run out of our theme song? Maybe that means... I'm not done yet. Maybe that means we go to the backup theme song. Oh, (laughs) you didn't know that was the backup theme song, did you? Oh, boy. This feels like we're in bonus time. Extra minutes. (laughs) 
<laughs> so let me finish up this little story about my son and the word so. When he was little, he met a little girl. We were at a Christmas party, in fact. And he said, how old are you? And she said, I'm three and three quarters. And he said, so? <laughs> how funny is that? How old are you? I'm three and three quarters. So? It was rude in a way, but it was so adorable, too. He was too little to really be rude. He was still figuring out how the language worked. And I just looked at him and said, you asked her. <laughs> he just didn't like the way she said it, I guess. A little too confident. He was four. He'd had enough of this three and three quarters business. He'd heard enough. Okay. Oh, boy. Here we are with the ding dong. Here we are with the extra. Oh, except that now it really is over. I have nothing else for you. The sand isn't the sand in the hourglass is almost out. And when that last grain of sand drops, we have a hard stop. And then we're done. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm sorry, people. It's just how it... Hello. It's me. Don't tell anyone I came back here. I could get fired. But I didn't want to leave you hanging like that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.